0: Welcome to Liberty in America, past, present, and future with Dr. Bill Choby. Doc is a historian and a reenactor. On this show, you'll hear his thoughts about our personal liberties from their earliest recorded beginnings. You'll also be transported back to the 1750s to relive the life of Colonel George Washington and his adventures during the French and Indian War. Let's get started. Here's Dr. Bill Choby. Okay, here we go. Dr. Bill Chobie. Uh, we had a discussion about liberty in America, past, present, and future. Today is number four in that series. Uh, we're talking about the challenges in the Middle Ages. If you recall, after our, you know, our last podcast, we talked about the fall of the Roman Empire and how it had overextended itself. There was moral degradation, lots of debt, and uh essentially social collapse. So, accordingly, you may remember at that time that Nero, while he was fiddling and watched Rome burn that he blamed it on the only part of town that was uh, not burning, that was inhabited by Christians, and it led to lots of persecution as a result. Uh, If you also remember, this was the same man who said that uh, in order to keep the populace quiet, you give them bread and circus, in other words, food and entertainment, uh, and not unlike we see happening today in our country. But in the Middle Ages, after the collapse of the Roman Empire, the Various areas, provinces, if you will, became countries that were headed by kings and queens. And it was, they developed a feudal system. Uh, that this is one where they had would grant land to bishops and barons and then exchange for a regular supply of soldiers and food and taxes. And these noblemen, they subdivided their lands to lords of the land who then leased it to peasants who, who worked for them. So it was sort of a hierarchy that's based upon, uh, you know, pretty much by force, because uh, the peasants had very few property or individual rights, and they were required to pay homage to the lords of the land in exchange for their protection, supposedly, and for the opportunity to uh, eke out a living from the small plots of land. So here's an example when might is right, the people grown in bondage. Now, mind you, that the medieval uh, global warming period began the year around 800 AD, and lasted for about 400 years. And it made for a very productive climate for growing crops and and, uh, and generally increased the uh, number of people and animals for that reason. The foods that they ate were basically grown above the ground with beans and barley, nuts, herbs, rice, wheat, et cetera, but grains. And these were uh, vulnerable to adverse weather and to invading armies. So what it really boiled down to is that the peasants had very little for themselves. And uh, they were very prone to malnutrition and uh, infectious communicable diseases because of the, the way they lived. But the uh, uncertain food supplies uh, would also cause major political conflicts. And when that happened, of course, then the peasants had to pay the price for it. And In essence, the peasants had very little personal individual freedom. It was uh, basically survival of the fittest uh, in a brutish short life. Uh, with uh, very primitive living conditions and, uh, and constant wars with uh, the king's enemies. But uh, throughout this time, they developed another hierarchy of influence, and that was the religious leaders. And so they, because they were uh, influenced beyond the political boundaries, they, they developed quite a following. Now, at that time, there were three main uh, divisions of uh, the uh, primary religion of Judaism. And we recall there was a patriarch Abraham uh, who uh, could not uh, have a son through Sarah, so he then took the aid of uh Hagar, and uh she had uh, a son to Abraham by the name of Ishmael, but he wasn't the promised one. And when Sarah did conceive with uh Isaiah, then um uh Ishmael was sort of cast out into the darkness. So with uh Isaiah uh, I'm sorry, Isaac, um, that was the lineage of the Jewish people, and Ishmael was the lineage of the Arabs, or the Muslims, as we know them today. Christianity, of course, we know came as a result of the, the lineage of Judaism later on through the introduction of that uh, sense of covenant through Jesus Christ. So the people were suffering in the chaos of all of this, and of course the battles between the Arabs uh, or the Muslims, the descendants of uh, Ishmael versus the descendants of uh, Isaac and Christians uh, over the the Holy Land. There was uh, back and forth crusades by Christians out of Europe to try to take the lands back from uh, Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. So armies would... Be raised by the different kings that would go and attempt to do this. But there was a mixed results with that. So early in the 12th century or so, there were uh, several soldiers that were elite, uh, considered elite soldiers, there were nine of them, that they organized to try to liberate the, the Holy Lands from the Arabs. And they called themselves the Poor Knights of the Temple Mount. And this was about the Temple of King Solomon, and that they began uh, a process that eventually turned into the Knights Templar. The Templars were um, monastic uh, warriors who would give up their own personal property to take on uh, the holy vows of a monk and uh, the the sword of uh, of an army. And because they were um, pretty much limited in their uh, jurisdiction, eventually uh, Pope Innocent II uh, issued a a papal bull, making them uh, a bona fide uh, monastic order, and uh, therefore they were able to operate across political boundaries. But they um, this group, um, we know them today as like the, the Knights of the Round Table, they were Templars. But uh, a description of them from then was, uh, a Templar knight is truly a fearless knight and secure on every side, for his soul is protected by the armor of faith, just as his body is protected by the armor of steel." He is thus doubly armed and need fear neither demons nor man. And so that high, high minded, um, uh, dedication to, to process and to their faith gave them great opportunities and they amassed tremendous wealth. And it, as they, uh, as they grew, the more and more recruits came into it, their numbers uh, exceeded over 10,000 and, uh, they became basically the largest military force in Europe. And under their control or under their protection, the peasants enjoyed more freedom than from what they had with the local kings. Now, they grew to be involved in banking. They, they developed the first traveler's checks to where uh, you know, pilgrims from, say, France wanted to go to the Holy Land. They would uh, buy these paper uh, uh, checks That would then leave their money behind. And when they got to Jerusalem, the the knights on the other end would cash it out and give them cash. It was safe from from being robbed on the way. Of course, their protection along the way was through the Templars. They eventually had over 9,000 tracts of land. They had a whole fleet of ships, and they became extremely powerful. These people, the the Knights Templar, were really the original uh, political freedom fighters, as we know, uh, of freedom today. Uh, and they got to be so wealthy that the different kings and even the church borrowed money from them. When the time came to pay them back, um, they couldn't. And so the solution for, say, example, Kings Philip and uh, the um, the Pope then uh, decided it was easier to just have them captured and tortured and killed, and then their problem with their debts solved. And that they did on Friday the thirteenth, thirteen O seven, and uh, this this persecution of the Templars continued for years, and finally, uh, on, in March of uh, thirteen fourteen, the Grand Master Jacques de Molay was uh, forced to uh, uh, forced to plead guilty to. Uh, uh, some kind of uh, confession that he was an infidel or he was a heretic. And therefore, he when he recanted this later on, they burned him at the stake. And, and while he's uh, in this smoldering mess, where they use green woods to make the pain endure even longer uh, rather than hot fires. He uh, proclaimed that before the end of the year, the French King Philip and uh, Pope Clement, would be would die, so his prophecy actually came true. Before the end of the year, they both died of natural causes. Part of what the, the supposedly the Templars had done was to carry some of the uh, the, the uh, treasures from King Solomon's temple even as far away as in the Scotland. We hear the stories of roslyn Chapel, and uh, the uh, the Templars also were were supposedly the ones that were. Uh, carried the, the Shroud of Turin from Constantinople after its fall. Uh, interestingly, the the uh, accusations of uh, heresy came because the Templars were, would uh, worship the Shroud of Turin uh, as the burial cloth of Christ, and because of that, the Church said that it was um, uh, heresy. So, very interestingly, the Shroud of Turin exists even to the, day, and yet is to be, to be fully explained, but just shows you the, the lineage of these relics that the Templars had, uh, had saved. So after the, uh, the disbursement of the Templars, and of course, then, you know, right became wrong and they're back into chaos and trouble again and the exertion of political force over people. So, uh, doing all these battles back and forth, there was one significant political development in 1215. That was uh when King John of England was was uh, facing near certain defeat at the uh, of his army at Runnymede, uh, he agreed uh, to recognize the unwritten rights of man and so it, it was uh, the first time that a written promise was made to the peasants that he would share some of his uh, his authority with his subjects so now after the uh, the medieval warming period. Here's how climate plays into all this as well. There was a little ice age began in about 1300, and this caused uh, a lot of the glaciers moving, uh, moving south into the latitudes. And incidentally, Greenland was named uh, Greenland, uh, even though it's covered with ice today at the time of the medieval warming period. So it was green at one time. Um, and the, um, but the advancement of ice in the ice ages, uh, had to do, it had a tremendous and profound effect on the political economy of Northern Europe because they, of course, you couldn't grow food like you could, you know, above the, above the grounds as they were accustomed to uh, finding for sources of their food. And uh, survival became much different than what it had been during the warming period. But in clustering them all together, there was an outbreak in the 1330s of the bubonic plague. And it first came from China, but it devastated the population of Europe, taking about one third of its population, which was an estimated 25 million people that were died of the black plague. And with this all uh, that we can sort of uh, understand plagues today or, or pandemics today, and the kinds of struggles we've had, but just imagine uh, what it was without the uh, intervention of government and all the, the the things that we've seen happen here in America. But there was rioting and there was plundering, and and of course the the hierarchy of uh, the political hierarchy was turned upside down, and the the religious leaders were at loss because they said their their prayers weren't being answered. So people began to rethink of what they were being told by religious leaders. But then just as mysteriously as it, the Black Plague appeared it disappeared. But the uh, decades of uh, disease and famine and war uh, really sort of turned everything upside down. Anarchy reigned supreme. Now, go back to the Templars. In, um, in Spain, there was the, the Sephardic Jews who were... Uh, basically, the Neo-Messianics, so they were the, the followers of Christ, uh, and they were moved to uh, to Spain after the, uh, the Romans had destroyed uh, uh, Jerusalem. And while they were there, uh, they were very uh, productive in, in growing, and along came the Catholic Church, and it decided that uh, it was the way for everything. And so the Neo-Messianics were then considered to be heretics again, because they didn't follow all the rules of the Catholic Church, and they began to be persecuted. And because they were heretics, of, uh, if you will, their heresy was they didn't agree with the church's rules, which at the time was much different than what we know today, and and did often change. Uh, they were, were either uh, imprisoned and languished until they died, and their property was stolen, or they were executed with a slow burn at the stake. So it was not a pretty thing. So when it came time for christopher columbus to come along uh, he was uh, a member of the knights of christ now his father father-in-law was uh, a master in the in what had become the remnant of the templars in portugal and christopher columbus which was not his real name by the way his uh, father was a nobleman but his mother was jewish and because she was jewish he was threatened or he was, he was thought of that he may lose everything he had and end up in, in prison and all of his property stolen, just as that happened to so many other people who were Jewish at the time. So he changed his name to, uh, the, his last name to that of what his, um, his wife had and therefore sort of hid the, the big secret. But the, um, because he had been the son of a nobleman, He had the the opportunities to learn from the greatest navigators of the time, and uh, when it came time for him to uh, uh, dream about crossing the Atlantic, it was that great uh, knowledge that he gained through his father's uh, influence that uh, gave him the idea about going west to the Indies to uh, further the gospel, if you will. Now, because um, they were, they were, uh, the Jews were being persecuted. and Anybody who didn't follow with the, the Catholic Church, including the Messianic Christians, they needed to get out of there fast because October thirty first, uh, fourteen ninety two, was the deadline. Either you get out, or you're going to, you know, we're going to take your money, or we're going to throw you in jail. So off they went uh, with the the three ships, Columbus's three ships, and you can see that he was a Templar. You see, the sails that they had with the, the red cross on it. Um. That was a sign of the Templars, but uh, the the uh, they left on the very last day, of the Nete Pinta Santa Maria, and um, at the very day that uh, Queen, Is- Spain, Queen Isabella ordered all the Jews to leave Spain. Uh, incidentally, today in, in Portugal there are uh, tremendous uh, uh, architectural feats, def- uh, feats and and buildings and tunnels and and things that go back to the Templars that. Uh, are there for anyone to explore uh, even today, so Columbus came over here okay, w- with this uh, fleet of three, uh, largely funded by the Neo messianics and people trying to flee the uh, the persecution of the grand inquisitors in Spain. Uh, so here they came and uh, found the new world. And uh, later on, those uh, neo-messianics, the messianics who came with Columbus, uh, they became the the um, foundation of the pirates of the Caribbean that we know today. And they hated the the Spanish so much. So this is why there was all these ratings. But but that's another story. I'll get back to that another time. But the uh, there was a there was a shift in the political thought when all this was going on because of the failure of the hierarchy to walk and talk on matters of faith. Uh, the king in England, King um, James the Third. Uh, he, he got tired of hearing these different theories about what is the proper theology instead. So he ordered the the translation of the scriptures uh, from the Latin, at that time Latin, which came from Greek, which came from Hebrew. Um, he ordered it to be changed so that uh, and at the time when the printing press, uh, Gutenberg's printing press happened to be about, so they started to print these things out in large numbers. And all of a sudden now, anybody who knew how to read could go and compare what they read, what they were being told by the church to see who was right. And that King James Version, the translation, uh, led to people thinking about, well, how should government be structured? I mean, if the kingdom of God is such, then how should the kingdom of man be? And it's from those early ideas about how we should be governed by secular laws uh, started to uh, grow some, uh, from a little seed into larger, uh, ideas about challenging the authorities of the supreme authorities of the countries. So the idea that the kings themselves would rule by as the divine right of kings and claiming that their ancestries go back to Adam and God gave Adam the, the uh, dominion over the earth, so therefore they were descendants of Adam and they, then they should be able to have the same power to say they have dominion over the earth, but after a while people realized that everybody goes back to Adam, so that sort of blew up that theory. But in 1644, uh, Samuel Rutherford, Ruff, Rutherford wrote The Law and the Prince, And he argued that uh, men's law uh, of governing society should be based upon the the, the Scriptures, rather than a forever changing ideas of men and and, uh, influence of individuals. And so he held that all uh, people were held under the law, and they could not exempt themselves from the sovereignty of the law. And um, this this solved an age-old problem of absolute sovereignty, as you see, because um, the idea that we are all equally short or uh, fallen short under the perfect uh, uh, perfection of God meant that uh, since we're all equally imperfect, then we are all equal. <laughs> That's really where the idea of equality comes from, you know. It's, it's not that, uh, you know, we're supposed to have equal stuff, but it's because we're all fallen short. And but that was a basis of a political uh, thought. You know, the basic concept of America is that we're all created equal, right? So the the idea goes back, you know, back into the 1600s. So when right was might, then people would be free. That was the the the, the idea that he was trying to project. But at the same time, another guy came along. His name was Thomas Hobbes, and he was the author of Leviathan. And this was written a little later, 1651 and of course we know the word leviathan means a huge beast so and that describes what he felt was needed to keep everything in order because you'd have to have this huge uh, bureaucracy or this huge army or whatever to to just sort of pound everybody into into um uh, uh the kind of order that would maintain some sort of order for whoever's advantage and uh, this, this came out as a result after the reign of King Henry VIII. And we know Henry VIII did. He had a power play with the Catholic Church. He declared himself the control of the Church of England and the Anglicans and all that sort of thing. And, uh, but Hobbes uh, insisted the government should control everything in order to maintain effective order. So it, it, this idea of the beast is then introduced. But he said that the tendencies of our, our natural tendencies is to do unto others before they do unto you, and he, because he considered life to be uh, a solitary, poor, poor nasty, brutish, and short. <laughs> nice guy, huh? With this in mind, he, uh, he went on to, his, to write that his primary goal was to propose acceptance of an absolute power, as a cure for civil war crimes and other social behaviors, but the question becomes, in his mind at least, in his writings, he said, "Well, who's to determine what the law is? By what standard will it be administered?" So he said that the uh, that they, quote that every subject whose rules which the the Commonwealth hath commanded him by word, writing, or other sufficient sign of the will to make use of for the distinction of rights and wrongs. But uh, it's clear then that we have that if the the civil laws proposed by Hobbes uh, were to be at the discretion of man, they would conflict with the moral laws of the Judeo-Christian tradition, and particularly the Messianics. So, what we would expect is that Hobbes really detested the the influence of uh, religion uh, in his full perfect world, and he wrote... Foreseeing the ghostly power challenged the right to declare what is sin, it challenged by consequence to declare what is law, unquote. So you can see the paradox here. Um, So off this went, and he also considered the family to be an extension of of the heavy-handed use of authority and recommended replacing the natural authority of father and mother with the authority of the state. Boy, doesn't that sound true today, huh? Okay. He contributed, though, he did make some, you know, make good points here. One is that he developed the idea of individual liberty because he created the notion of placing the ultimate social power of government's legal framework uh, to uh, put it into the context of laws rather than the ever-changing minds of kings. Recall that, you know, what whatever the king said was the law. So if he decided one day he didn't like this law. He'd just make a new one and it was the law of the land. So he conceived the idea of the, the general will of the people. So it's like the, the public interest we call it today or the majority or the Democrat kind of way of reasoning. But the, um, at the same time we also had John Locke came around 1689 and he he had uh, written a number of pieces on government but his second treatise on government was he he really built the case for uh, political leadership uh, based on the consent of the governed by um m- meticulously referring to the, the the basically where most you know high minded thought came from which was the scriptures and um he built the idea that the, the rights of citizens to life, liberty, and property were a fundamental gift from God itself, Himself, and that the moral foundations of the uh, civil and criminal laws should arise from the, from basically the good of the community. So, um, if you look at Chapter Two, the, the State of Nature, Locke wrote that uh, to understand, this is Chapter Two, Section Four, to understand quote to understand political right and derive it from the original, we must consider. What state will men naturally be in? And that is a state of perfect freedom in order to their actions and dispose of their possessions and persons as they think fit within the bounds of the law of nature without asking leave or depending upon the will of other men. I'm not going to go into any further discussion on this because it's pretty – of course, they wrote much differently than we do today, but – let me just say this is, uh, chapter two, section six. Although this be a state of liberty, yet it is not a state of license. Though man in the state have an uncontrollable liberty to dispose of his persons or possessions, yet he has not liberty to, to destroy himself so much as any creature in his possession, but where some nobler use of its fair preservation calls for it. End of quote. Uh, so John Locke was very influential, uh, later on with our founders and much of his ideas. Were carried forth. But the idea of a sovereign law as a supreme authority of government uh, was really another step towards our political uh, uh, liberties as we know them. But along came uh, Rousseau. Now, he was an 18th century guy, a Frenchman, who uh, was one of the leading figures of the French Enlightenment. And in 1762, he wrote Social Contracts, where he put forth the idea of the general will as the ultimate expression of, of a community's people. And basically what it was, was that uh, vox populi, vox dei The voice of the people is the voice of God. So the majority of people saying one thing has to be the voice of God, and that gave it the authenticity. But the, what they didn't know is that, you know, <laughs> majorities can be dead wrong. And uh, that certainly found its way into the um what eventually when it was tried through the the french revolution uh we know how that worked out but he had um his thoughts were that people could not be free to discuss their ideas and laws until the rigors of life were removed by a powerful central government so this was uh, during the Enlightenment. Of course, the, the French thought of many different things. They they wanted to change the week to ten days instead of seven, and um, they they wanted to get rid of Sundays. They were going to get rid of religion. They were get rid of whole kinds of things. So they were turning basically all the ideas, of the country upside down. And of course, Rousseau uh, detested the power of the Catholic Catholic Church or Christian Church in France. It was uh, Catholic because they could not. He could not convince the followers of the Church of Christ with their new ideas concerning how things would be. As, as an example, the seven-day week being changed for a 10-day week to a decimal system of sorts. And um, in this uh, uh, discussion, he claimed that the Christian commission to their faith, commitment to their faith was a major obstacle committing the allegiance of uh, the people to the state. And he wrote that, quote, each citizen would be completely independent of his fellow man and absolute dependent on the state, which operation is always brought by the same means, for it is only by the force of the state that the liberty of its members can be secured. End of quote. So there you have it. You know, we're back to this old thing in Aristotle and Plato. You see who's going to be in control. All right. So he went on to say that uh, the parents should not be permitted to educate their children because a father's prejudices would interfere with the development of good citizens. And he wrote, should the public authority in assuming the place of the father and charging itself with this important function acquire his rights in the discharge of his duties, he should have little charge to protest. For he would only be altering his title, and that would have in common and under the name citizen the same authority over his children that he was exercising uh, separately under the name of the father and would be no less obeying, when speaking in the nature of the law than was spoken out of nature. Now, (laughs) if you can understand that, you're pretty sharp, because (laughs) this is the way they reasoned those days. No wonder they were confused. But here the point was that the children were to be... um, Conform to the outlook of the majority of the people. It was also always the majority. This is the idea where democracy comes from. Demo means people and democracy means government. So people, governments, people. Um, but essentially what it is, it's mob rule. And we saw what happened with the uh, French Revolution whenever there were shortages because the uh, the weather and armies stomping over all the food that was grown above the earth. Um, they the hunger led them to political upheaval and uh, eventually led to the, the guillotining of King Louis XVI. But uh, prior to all of this, there's another interesting side note. You know, Columbus, when he brought uh, goods back from uh, South America, included were things such as potatoes. And those potatoes were grown underground. Now, that was a food source that's protected from weather and, and armies. But And King Louis wanted to, to get people to get to eating potatoes. And Marie Antoinette used to wear potato flowers in her hair as a sign that the um, that uh, it should be fashionable to eat potatoes. But the Catholic Church says the potatoes are underground, therefore they are of, they are of the devil and they should be avoided. Well, the king tried to get people to encourage it by creating this little plot of land that says the farmers are not allowed to go in there. He made it seem like there was something secret happening in there. And at the same time, he told the guards, you know, let them go in and peek around a little bit. So, when the farmers saw that there was this food crop coming out of there it was actually something that was good for them then it started to grow and and the the widespread uh planting of potatoes followed in spite of what the catholic church said about it being demonic but it was enough in time to prevent the french revolution from executing the king and uh and of course we know what happened with the the, the um the french revolution as compared to our own uh it was the uh, you know the whole concept of uh, rolling by this men, uh, group of uh, mobsters that eventually, you know, the most famous saying was, uh, by when facing the guillotine, it, the most famous saying was, but I'm on your side. In other words, he turned against everyone. And this is a, you know, a, a, uh, a tribute to the failed philosophy of do as thou wilt, but so do what you want to do. So liberty without boundaries, you see here can lead to chaos and destruction and even, you know, the collapse of a society. So that sort of brings us up to date. And I hope you enjoyed the series today. I threw a couple little other things in there as we were going. But uh, next week, we'll hit the next chapter where we start to talk about all of this in the new world. So again, Dr. Bill Chovey calling on the podcast here, discussing liberty in America, past, present, and future. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this one. Thank you.